All right, we are back with another episode of the Defend and Confirm podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. And this is our second episode in our series on political theology. Yeah. In our first episode, we basically laid the groundwork. It was kind of the boring stuff. I think a lot of it was really cool and useful. The boring stuff, maybe definitions, you know, Mm -hmm. what is liberalism and so on and so forth. The fun stuff, doing a, a biblical theology of the state, uh, yes. primarily through the lens of covenant. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we were creating the building blocks with which we're going to attack some bad political theologies and build a positive yeah. biblical political theology. You, you just, if you, if you didn't listen to that lesson, you got to go back. Go back, listen to that episode. Uh, it'll, be hard to follow things even that yeah. we're talking about if you don't understand it. But so. just a, a brief 30-second <clears throat> review. You basically uh, established an Aristotelian mean. You said, Ooh. right, or, or to say it a little more country since we're in Alabama, you said don't go off on either side of the road into mm-hmm. these ditches, right? One ditch was? Uh, the first ditch is we, we called Christian liberalism, right. which would basically be uh, theonomy, the establishment camp, uh, people who want to see the national government enforce God's law more broadly in society. And then the other ditch would be? The opposite. People who say religion should have nothing to do with society. As Christians, we just got to keep our views private. Don't take them into the public square. Okay. And so what are we talking about today? Well, we want to, I think this is probably a little bit more of sort of building a groundwork, but it's getting more specific and it's getting more controversial. Mm. Now we're talking about the relationship between church and state. Okay. So as an American, uh, I'm sure you have heard of a phrase about church and state. Yes. What would that be? Uh, they're always good and should be together yes, all the time. all the time. No, the, the separation of church and state, Yeah. which was in our constitution. <laughs> I heard that doing some evangelism at an abortion rally one time. Yeah. Like, it is in the constitution. Well, guess what? It's, it's not. not. Yeah. Uh, it's from a letter yeah. by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists. Okay. And he was basically describing uh, the function of the First Amendment as creating a wall of separation between church and state. Uh, he may have coined the phrase, but he really doesn't get credit for that idea. Okay, uh, The idea is really part of the Christian worldview. We get the idea of the separation of church and state as two distinct institutions with boundaries mm-hmm. that shall not be crossed over. Yeah, uh, we get that from from Christians, from the Bible. Okay, this is something the Bible teaches us. Um, Baptists, in particular, deserve a lot of credit for this historically. Yeah, uh, Baptists in the American uh, colonies, up to the American states, uh, were were strong advocates for this doctrine, and were really some of the first to open their Bibles and start showing this to others. Thank you, Roger Williams. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. This is kind of ironic, though, that the separation of church and state would be a Christian concept from a Christian worldview. I'm guessing you're going to bear this out with arguments? Yeah, I plan to. you just to. kind of stated No, it. no, I'm going to argue for it. I'm okay. going to show you where it is in the Bible. Okay, all right. But, but the irony is it's not who we hear it from most of the time today. We Cr- hear the church and, and state so, have to be yeah. separate. Okay, we hear that from the secular. Yeah, from pagans. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, really good example of this. One uh, newspaper in 2019 had an editorial that that read, the terrifying rash of state abortion bans spreading throughout the United States has captured the nation's attention. The First Amendment prohibits the government from imposing one set of religious beliefs or religion at all on others, but that's undeniably what these bans are doing. Mm. 
So what's the problem there? Well, it, it says that this is, uh, it assumes religious neutrality. Yeah, exactly. So first of all, the First Amendment does not prohibit the government from imposing religious beliefs on anyone. Okay. That's not what it does. Right. Uh, as we're going to see, the biblical doctrine of separation of church and state is not the separation of religion from politics. Okay. The first is good. Yes. God-honoring. Yes. Uh, wise. The other is impossible. Can't the, the, be done. The first one is the separation of institutions. That's right. Right? Authority structures. Yep. The church as an authority structure. The state as an authority structure. What about the other two, religion and politics? Yeah, you can't. You cannot separate religion from politics. Right. And that's the, that's the error of the age, right? Uh, secularists, which we would often identify as pagans. Yeah, uh, which just means people of the earth. People yeah. of the earth. Uh, they would say, I'm not religious, so when I go and vote that abortion should be legal, mm -hmm. I'm exercising something other than a religious value. Mm. We would say, you are religious. Whether or not you acknowledge a God, you are exercising a religious pre-commitment. Yeah. You're exercising a moral judgment, which is fundamentally a religious judgment, and you're showing the God that you believe in and carrying his values into the public square. Yeah, uh, you, you gave a good illustration of this in the last episode at the very end, if okay. you want to go back and listen. It's a helpful one. But again, we're saying that the separation of church and state is good. The separation of religion and politics is impossible. Not just bad, but impossible. That's right. Okay. So let's start with just this question of authority, because this is key to understanding what the state is and what the church is. Okay. Authority is the moral right to do something. Okay. So I can have authority. Yeah. Uh, for this example... Is, so, sorry, this is in distinction to power. Yes, that's uh, pow important. Okay. Power is just the ability to do something. Yeah. Authority is the moral right to do something. Like I could have the power to go out and arrest someone for jaywalking. Right. Yeah. I don't have the authority to do that. Right. You I'm, have not been deputized. That's yeah. exactly right. Okay. Uh, you likewise... Uh, for example, might have the authority to discipline your child, uh, but your child's up in a tree. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I can't so get to him. I can't, I can't spank him. Yeah. Uh, I don't have the power to currently. Uh, silly illustration, but just to show you the distinction yeah, between I got the two. It. So who has ultimate authority? God. God, of course, right? He's the author. He and as my all... daughter would say, and Jesus. And Jesus, yeah. <laughs> See, we're working on that Trinity thing with her. Uh, so God uh, has ultimate authority, and that means he even has authority over our national governments. This is something we saw in the covenant structures of our last episode. Right. Uh, the Genesis Psalmist, 9. Genesis 9, right? God institutes governments. Okay. They come from him, and any authority that a state ruler has is derived from God and it's basically God giving that authority out to them. Okay. Um, this is why the psalmist says, Psalm 9610, that the Lord reigns and he will judge the peoples with equity. In Psalm 2, we read the warning to the rulers of the earth. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear. So th this isn't just a, a warning to kings of the ancient world, you know, the right. Nebuchadnezzards. This right. is a warning to presidents and parliaments mm -hmm. and senators dictators, everyone on the world now. So God has authority over nations, over their rulers, over their governments. We also know he rules over the church, right? Right. He's Ephesians 5. He, he is our sole and ultimate authority within the church. And so we see God's authority extending like an umbrella. Yeah. You can imagine this canopy illustration again over both the state and the church below that umbrella. Right. Yet... He's given them different kinds of authority. Mm. So while God is over both, 
the two aren't touching. Like they're not just in one bucket down below that canopy. They're separated. Okay. Right. So you can imagine like one circle here, that's the state. One circle here, that's the church. Above them is this canopy of God's authority. Yeah. Um, the kind of authority these two in institutions have, it's not a mystery. The Bible tells us. So uh, let's start off with the church. Okay. The Bible gives us a word picture, like an image, yeah. for the kind of authority that the church exercises. What is the, that? The staff or the keys? The keys. Ah, Yeah, yes, the keys. The, the keys. shepherd has the staff. The church has the keys. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean, the keys? The, the keys are just like the ability to, well, the binding and loosing, right? To, to render authoritative judgments, particularly about the who and the what of the gospel. Yeah. So yeah. what the what of the gospel, meaning the church can declare authoritatively, mm -hmm. This is what you should believe. Yeah, this is the true gospel that can save. And or this who, is not. Or yeah. this is not, yeah. And the who, the church is authoritatively, authoritatively declaring, we believe you to be a Christian. That's right, yeah. Or not. That's right. Uh, so that's the exercise of the authority of the keys. And we carry that out through the process of... Church membership and church discipline. That's right. Yeah. So two, two sides of the same coin, like ushering people in mm -hmm. and releasing people back to the world. That's right. Uh, so and when we say church discipline... Um, Ultimately, that can culminate in excommunication mm -hmm. from the church, where the church has to say, we're declaratively, authoritatively, under the power and authority of Jesus Christ, saying we no longer affirm your profession that's of right. faith. But there's a whole lot of discipline that happens in the church that's not that. Yeah, there's formative discipline, yeah. Yeah, even minor corrections between brothers, sure. right? It doesn't always escalate to that ultimate point. That's right. Um, and that's important when we see the parallels in the state. Okay. The purpose of that authority, of the authority of the keys given to the church is yeah. to what? Is to carry out the Great Commission. Yeah, which yeah. is essentially proclaiming to the world yeah. uh, the gospel of this new kingdom, yeah. right? To, to proclaim it and then to, to teach people to obey God and baptize right. them and bring them in. Jesus doesn't give us a mission without giving us the authority to carry out the mission. It would be like if, 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 I, told, uh, if I told you to go make an arrest, but I hadn't given you a badge and a gun. That's right? right. You need the authority to carry out the mission. Yeah, and, okay. and likewise, we need the power. And That's that right. power also comes from God. Amen. So with the church, we have the authority of the keys, yeah. exercise that looks like membership and discipline. Yeah. And the purpose of that is the proclamation of this new kingdom and the Great Commission. Yeah. So what about the state? Well, the state... Uh, well, before you even get yeah, to the state, ahead. let's just... Yeah. I always like to round it out just to show the kind of holistic way that this works in all of creation. The Lord also uh, establishes the same thing, uh, the same kind of authority with family, right? What's, what's, the, what's the symbol there? The rod? The rod, yeah. Right? And the mission is the creation mandate, right? Be fruitful, mm -hmm. multiply, fill the earth. And, uh, and the authority is... Uh, it's the authority of, of the rod in a sense yeah, too, right? right? Like yeah. the discipline. Okay. So yeah. we have the authority of the family, the authority of the church. It's almost like you kind of go from one to the other, finally to the state. Okay. That's right. Now, with the state, so so God has not instituted a particular type of government. Oh. Not a controversial statement. Are you sure uh, that's not controversial? It, among people who <laughs> think about it, <laughs> okay. God has not said you must have a king. God has not said you must have a democracy. Well, I read my Old Testament, and it seems like there were kings there. Yeah. And do you remember how they got that king? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. It was called rebellion. Yeah. Yeah. So does God appoint kings? Does God appoint uh, Does he senates, raise up rulers? Congressmen? Yes. Absolutely. So God uses human means, human systems yes. of government that in our attempts to rule, 
we have created, and some of them are far more wise and sure. far more just than others. Uh, God uses all those, yeah. so he appoints those, uh, but he hasn't particularly prescribed, yeah. you must have a representative republic with right. term limits of four years and yada, yada, yada. Well, the reason why I bring that up is is because of so some of the distinctions we're trying to make is that some people who say, I believe the Bible, mm-hmm. right, all of the Bible, they'll say, I look in the Bible and I do see God appointing a form of government. And that's what we dealt with in the last episode, right? That's right. The, the form of government that God appointed was for his particular people in his particular place at a particular time. Yeah. All of that has been fulfilled in Christ. It's done away with because it's been fulfilled in Christ. So really the more precise question is in the New Testament, under the new covenant, as God's people are scattered once again among the nations, do we see him prescribe a form of government for those nations where they are? And the answer is no. The answer is no, but that doesn't mean God doesn't prescribe things for government. Exactly. Yes. Good distinction. And so we get another word picture uh, in our New Testament for the type of authority that the state has. So remember with the church, the church has the keys. Keys, right. With the state we have. The sword. Yeah. And where do we get that from? Uh, yeah, I think a guy with uh, the blacksmith. Yes, right? that is where we get swords. Swords, yes. Okay, not oh, quite what I was asking. Oh, you mean like where in the Bible? <laughs> Romans 11. Romans 14. 13. <laughs> 13. Just, are we just doing bracketing here? In. Yeah. Right, yeah, okay, go ahead. So Romans 13, uh, yeah. Paul gives us the image of the sword. Right? Yeah. The, uh, the servant of the Lord, this is the state. Mm-hmm. Paul's talking about the, the state as a servant of God. A deacon. Bearing the sword. Yeah. to punish wrongdoers in the service of God. Yeah. So this sword is the authority uh, to use coercive force in the pursuit of justice. But Paul Paul isn't like doing new theology there in no. Romans 13. Where have we already talked about this idea of God uh, instituting uh, this authoritative figure or body to carry out retributive justice in yeah. the name, re- retributive Gen- punishments in the name of justice? Genesis 9. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul is just taking that and he's amplifying it and expanding it. That's exactly right. right. Paul is describing the authority of government that God has given government that any good Jew would have known, Mm -hmm. anyone who reads their Bible would have known in the first century. And now this this sword, this word picture of the sword is important because like the keys, that authority plays out in real life. In the church, it's membership and discipline. In society, it's punishments. But the sword is a tool of punishment. And just like church discipline, that that doesn't mean every single injustice is answered with decapitation. Right. It doesn't mean that there is a sense in which ultimately it can lead to execution by the sword, just like our discipline in the church can ultimately Ultimately. lead to excommunication. But there's a whole world of punishments that the sword represents uh, for infractions, you know, that don't quite meet that demand of justice. Everything from a speeding ticket all the way up to... Yeah. yeah. Now, how am I getting that biblically? Um, if you look back at Genesis 9, there's a phrase there, blood for blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, blood is spilled. The answer is the spilling of blood. Yes. That is not unique to Genesis 9. That's okay. a phrase that's found through all, all, all God's law. We see the eye for an eye, mm-hmm. tooth for a tooth. Those are not meant to be understood literally in the sense that like, oh, uh, Exact parody. This is an exact parody. You did exactly this, so I'm doing exactly this back Mm -hmm. to you in the same exact way. What it's talking about there is the the principle that the punishment should fit the crime. Yeah. And this is well understood by biblical scholars. Uh, Even the theonomy camp who who looks at the Old Testament law and says, yes, that today, now. Yeah. 
uh, they recognize this, that it's a principle of parity. Yeah, and, and if you're listening to this and you think, well, that's just common sense. It's common sense to you now because yes. you are descended from this deeply Christian worldview. But what, what happened uh, after the fall with Cain's descendants, you remember? The, it was the exact opposite of reciprocity. It was, if you do this to me, I'm going to repay you this sevenfold. I'm yeah. going to do violence to you way worse than what you did to me. Just yeah. look at all the injustice that we see in, in other places around the world, yeah. where you get thrown in jail for life for the pettiest of, of offenses. That's right. Even yeah. like in American history, you used to be able to be hung for stealing a horse. Yeah. Uh, that's not just by God's standard. Yeah. It's, that's right. That's unjust. So when you look at our Western system of justice and this <laughs> yeah. idea of like punishments fitting crime. You're like, duh. Praise God from <laughs> whom all the, like that's from God. Yeah. It's from God's okay. word. So uh, the carrying out of this, this authority via the sword is, we see that in the punishments that yeah. the state is authorized to exact. This is the recompense of Genesis 9. Mm -hmm. And what's the purpose of this? Remember the purpose of the authority given to the church was to proclaim this new kingdom yeah. to the world. Well, from Genesis 9, we see that the purpose of the authority of the sword is to preserve the old kingdom. That's right. It's the, to the preserve humanity. The, yeah, it's the restraining, it's God's restraining hand. Yes. Yes. Uh, and we see it right alongside there, that, that echo of Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. Right. So the idea being um, that humanity can't do that. <laughs> without the restraining force of government. Yeah. We're not going to be fruitful. That's right. Um, we may kill ourselves off before we can multiply. Yeah. So this idea that the government uh, serves this purpose, that it has the sword and is God's servant, you can really start to see it connected to the larger larger story of God's redemption. Yeah. Right. It, this governments serve a purpose in God's historical redemptive plan of forming a people for himself, of bringing them into this new kingdom, preserving them long enough that all of his elect from all over the world are going to hear the gospel because they live in societies where they're not starved to death at, at three months old or murdered before they can hear a preacher right. pro proclaim the, the good word. I mean, yeah. God uses governments for our good. So you're saying that the government of the state is in service to the government of the church. I'm saying that in God's plan, yes. Yeah. But ultimately, the two institutions yeah. are distinct and the kinds of authority he gives them are different, and they, they cannot overlap. We must not confuse the keys with the sword. Yeah, so both obey God in their own way, yeah. but neither is above the other. Right? Yeah. So it's, it is a, a disordering of God's authority structures he's put on earth yeah. for the church to wield the sword. And that doesn't mean that there's never any semblance of overlap between the two. For example, yeah. the, 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 the sword and the rod are distinct, but if parents abuse children, well, then the state, as a part of its mandate to pursue justice, must step in with a sword, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, you see a little overlap uh, in a sense as well when you look at the kinds of judgments that are being made uh, and where the standard for that judgment comes from. So the church, when we render judgments about the who and the what of the gospel, we look to a standard. Yeah. So if somebody comes to our church and says, hey, I want to join, yeah. and we sit down and talk to them and find out that they don't believe Jesus was God, mm -hmm. what are we appealing to when we say, hey, friend, you're, you're not a Christian? Yeah, God's word, primarily. Looking at God's revelation. In the same way, when the church, or excuse me, when the state, in seeking to pursue justice, defines justice, defines, well, what is good that, that we should approve of? Uh-huh. And what is evil, evil that, that we, we should, should punish? punish it, yeah. Where does the state look to? Yeah. 
It, it, it's going to look somewhere. It has to look to God's standard of right and wrong. Yeah, that's right. It has to look to God's revelation. So there is or a it sense. Should. It should, yes. yes. Well, the same is true of churches, right? Yeah, they should <laughs> be looking right. to God's word. So both being under the authority of God are similarly looking to God mm -hmm. for their marching orders mm -hmm. and looking to God for the standard by which they render judgments. Yet, they're side by side. You, you can't put one over the other. The state can't right. control the church and start using the keys. Uh, and the church can't suddenly start wielding the sword, even if they do so in sort of a subtle backroom kind of way. Right. Um, now, I think we see bib biblical precedents for this. Okay, go ahead. Oh, are we going to talk about historical examples of where sure, this give has me gone one. wrong? Yeah. Well, take uh, all of Christendom, maybe? <laughs> Just some version of the state trying to encroach on the church and the yes. church trying to encroach. And every time that happens, both are corrupted. So we see this principle, I think, in John 18, where Jesus is about to be arrested. Peter draws a sword, mm -hmm. right? Peter, the rock. Peter, upon whom Jesus will build his church, right? right? Carries the sword in his hand to defend Jesus against the government of a pagan nation. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of imagery here that ties yeah, into what we're right. doing. And Jesus rebukes him. Right. That's, that's not how it's done. You, you, you're mixing. Yeah. yeah. I think similarly, we can look back to the Old Testament to Daniel, uh, where King Nebuchadnezzar decrees that everybody's got to get together and worship this giant image of gold. Um, that's not just wrong because it's a false god. Okay. I'm going to argue, and we're going to see this more in our next few classes, that that's wrong because Nebuchadnezzar is stepping outside the authority that God has given to the state mm. by telling people who to worship, mm. period. Okay. Uh, now, that's the area where people who have theonomic inclinations in the establishment camp, big Christian government camp, they're all going to say, no, no, no. That's justice, right? The government exists to punish the wrongdoer and approve of what's good, and the Bible says worshiping God is good and worshiping idols is wrongdoing. Therefore, we should... Right, and they're right on that. Okay. But that's distinctly different from the question of whether or not governments today have the authority to wield the sword in that area. Mm, okay. Uh, and, and that's coming back to the question of authorization. That's again. right. Okay. Question of authority. So, well, um, sorry. On the, let me just pause right here yeah, and yeah. encourage our listeners. If you're feeling like like we're kind of butting up against certain things that 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 frustrate you, I just want to encourage you to try to persevere through the whole series because some of these things that you think, well, well, that's wrong, and you're mm -hmm. just tempted to turn us off. Well, we might actually do a whole episode on the thing that you're struggling with as you hear us say it right now yeah. that might totally clarify all this. So, yeah, yeah hang in there. The, the only way that we could walk through this and every time we step on a potential landmine, like we stop everything dive down into that, disarm it, see it from every angle, unpack it. Yeah. We'd never be able to get We'd through these never episodes. Finish, yeah. okay. Not so. only that, it wouldn't make as much sense. Yeah, that's right. So when you hear something, expect us to talk about it again. Uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel 23.3, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise. On a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. This is, this is a picture of good authority. Mm -hmm. So this verse is showing us that, that God's word speaks of authority as a good thing. Yeah, it's right? a good it's thing. an example of his common grace, uh, particularly when rulers rule in righteousness and in the fear of God. Mm. So this is just more biblical examples of this idea that the state and the church are A, distinct, but B, also all both deriving their authority from the God okay. who they should acknowledge. We um, want we want a president like that. We want Congress like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
just another distinction here, the government and its authority is used for temporal purposes. Okay. Right? The government punishes with a physical object and can end your physical life. Yeah. You know, ultimately lock you in jail, execute you. Uh, but again, that's that's a that's a temporal purpose. It's a it's a temporary purpose. Okay. Right? Governments when Christ returns, will go away. Okay. There'll be no need to restrain evil and preserve the old kingdom anymore. Whereas uh, God uses the church for eternal purposes and for purposes that are not merely temporal, but are also spiritual. Right. So again, just some distinctions between the kinds of authority yeah, I see it. between those two institutions. Now, well, the church and the state staying in their lanes seems important. Right, God's yeah. given them different roles, different authorities, and we see some evidence that they should not overlap. Okay, which leads to all sorts of questions and debates and frustration among Christians today over, like, well, where is that good and where is that bad? Is that is is a bunch of kids praying in a public school? Is that the overlap? Right. Uh, drag queen story hour is that an overlap? Uh, what about abortion? Like we read in our introductory excerpt from a newspaper, is that an overlap? Yeah. Uh, so. These are good questions, and we need to think through, I think, again, back to our two big errors okay. as, a, as a rubric for thinking through this concept. The view that says total separation of religion and politics. As Christians, we need to keep ourselves separate from the world and not bring our religion into the public square. Okay. Don't vote with your Bible open. Yeah. And then the other side that says, actually, we need to establish a closer relationship between church and state. Um, something more like what the establishment camp of uh, the colonial era would have said. Mm. One thing that I think a lot of critics of theonomy and establishmentarianism and, and this sort of stuff do poorly is they, they criticize all day, but they don't often give a good positive vision. Like, What does the Bible say things ought to be? Yeah. Uh, I think I'm, I'm going to make an attempt here to give a positive vision on what the Bible speaks of when it speaks about the relationship between church and state. Okay. It's not total separation of religion and politics, and it's not establishment. I think we could call it something like acknowledgement. Okay. So in this view, and it's sort of a middle view, but number one, it means the state simultaneously acknowledges two different things. The state acknowledges first that its authority comes from God. Mm-hmm. The state can't pretend to be religiously neutral. It can't pretend its laws and its moral claims on its citizens are religiously neutral, right? Because they're not. Uh, so when the state deals with issues like murder and slavery and theft and corruption, it should be looking to God's standard of justice and how he defines those things as good or bad. Sorry. So let's just run this through the mill of... Let's just run a little thought experiment. How do we get Xi Jinping to acknowledge that his authority comes from God? Uh, how do we get that to happen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, through prayer and we pray God's grace. Okay, so the reason why I ask this is because I think what some people will do as they hear you say that <clears throat> is they'll say, so you're a theonomist. Mm. Because they'll say the only way that anyone ever recognizes, <sighs> right, officially that that they owe that their authority is derived from God is is if they're Christian. Right. Right. Secular governments don't do that. So yeah. what you're saying is not that every government would do this. You're saying that every government should do this. Yes. This is an is ought distinction. Yes. So what is right now, when we look around, yes. there <clears throat> is no acknowledgement of God's authority by Xi Jinping. Yeah. There ought to be. Or from Joe Biden. Precisely. Yeah. So uh no, I'm arguing that the state 
ought to acknowledge, whoever that is, leaders, rulers, kings, senates, ought to acknowledge that their authority, and not only their authority, but their standard of judgment needs to align with God's standard of right and wrong, true and false, just and unjust. Okay. and this is a broad moral claim. God has a has a moral claim over the leaders of all governments. Um, now, how do they acknowledge this? Okay. This is the important question. And I, I think to this point, many of the liberal Christian types, the onimist establishmentarians, would agree with me. It's in the how do they acknowledge it that I think we part ways. Okay. Um, you know, some some people will propose things like, yeah, well, you, that's why you need a national statement of faith. Yeah. You need a national confession. Yeah, I don't Douglas th- Wilson thinks there should be a confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ in the right. Constitution. Uh, biblically, I don't see any warrant for that, number one. Number two, what we do see biblically over and over and over again is that rulers acknowledge <laughs> and, and show their fear and honor of God by ruling justly, by mm. ruling righteously, not in protecting true doctrine or trying to exercise essentially the keys yeah. of the kingdom by determining the who and the what of the gospel. Um, so that's the first thing the state has to acknowledge. Authority from God, God's standard, and we honor yeah. God and show our acknowledgement of him by operating in according to his standard. Can a pagan leader do that? Yes, in a form of blessed inconsistency. Okay. Yeah, so if you have a pagan leader that has reasoned through his, well, let's just say you get a, an Austin Peterson, libertarian guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with him on some of his politics. Mm-hmm. When he says things like abortion is murder, he's not reasoning from a Christian worldview. Yeah. He's reasoning as an atheist, a materialist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yet he gets to the right answer. I, yeah. I would call that a blessed inconsistency. Yeah. Um, he personally is not honoring God in that sense, but the nation is blessed through God's common grace mm-hmm. to use what is essentially a broken stick to draw a straight line. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing the state has to acknowledge is the, its limited jurisdiction. Okay. And this is the point that I'm going to make in our next episode, which means the state has been given the authority to pursue justice as it relates to certain crimes, certain sins, certain aspects of God's law, but not all of them. Okay. Um, go all, ahead. All, <clears throat> all crime is sin, not all sin is crime. Yes, and everyone would agree with that. Okay. Uh, the distinction I'm going to make here, and it'll become more clear in our next episode, is the, the, the Christian liberalism camp, for lack of a simpler way to say it, they want to see all Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, mm-hmm. which we can basically say is a summary of God's law. Yeah. They want to see that enforced by the power of the sword. Yeah. And they think that that's, that's what all nations, all leaders, are responsible before God to do. They want to treat all of those sins as crimes. Okay. Yes. But even they would acknowledge like, yeah, but there are sins that are not punishable by the sword. Right. Yeah. Um, so the question is, does Genesis 9 give all of the nations of earth and all their leaders the authority to enforce all 10 commandments? Or does it give them something much more narrow? Yeah. And I think it's clear when we look at that text and we look at other biblical texts that our nations, very much unlike Israel, are not authorized to enforce all Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a distinction that we can make between like the first and the second table of the law. Right. Some some of our listeners may have heard that before. It's kind of a silly distinction uh, because probably when we think of like the two tablets that God wrote the law on, they're yeah. probably both two copies of the same law. Okay. Like there's this Suzerian vassal treaty thing going on where historically. Uh, the the author of that covenant would have made a copy for himself and, and a, a copy, copy for yeah. his people. 
that's probably what's there. Yeah. So when we say two tables, we have this um, yeah. image of like, well, the first five commandments are on the one, well, and yeah. the second five are on another. That's probably not yeah. how it was. But when we break the law cleanly in the middle like that, we can sort of see that the first at least four commandments and partially the fifth relate specifically to our vertical responsibilities between mm -hmm. us and God. Right. Uh, and, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. Mm -hmm. Don't make graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Yeah. The Sabbath, and then honor thy parents, which mm -hmm. is sort of an authority recognition that blurs the line between yeah. our responsibilities to God and our human mm -hmm. fellow That's humans. Right. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We see our horizontal responsibilities yes. between us and our neighbors. So whether or not the two tables were really broken up that way, there is a distinction in God's law between purely vertical commands and responsibilities and horizontal commands and responsibilities, yeah, that's right. which are still to God as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, but this is why we see, for example, the summary of the law that is both in the Old Testament, and we hear mm -hmm. Jesus repeat this, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, that the the bifurcation of that great command shows that even God has within his law a distinction between yeah. crimes against man and sins directly against God. Two broad categories, yeah. So in our next episode, I'm going to contend, I, th I think this is the right view, that biblically, because we're not in the same sort of covenant authorization as Israel, as a people, we're under the Noahic covenant. And governments, being under the Noahic covenant, are only authorized uh, to enforce the horizontal elements of God's law. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to send us down a rabbit trail, but it is significant to think about the fact that the Decalogue was delivered to Moses as the leader of his covenant national people. It was mm -hmm. not delivered to Abraham. It was not even delivered to Noah, even though Noah had the capacity to fulfill God's standard of justice. Yeah. yeah. One thing we haven't done is there's a lot that could be fleshed out on what does it look like to acknowledge God as a government? Yeah. Um, I, I've given a short answer, which is to rule justly. Yeah. There, there's probably some other answers Christians could give that I would think there's there's wiggle room there in the realm of wisdom. Like how much does our government, like do we put in God we trust in some establishing document? Mm -hmm. Does our government have an obligation in its founding documents to point to Genesis 9 and say, here's where we get our marching orders. It's from God. Uh, I don't think that would necessarily be wrong. I don't know that it would necessarily be wise. I don't know how it would necessarily be possible. Or even helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are, if, you, if you look at the history of uh, ostensibly Christian countries in the West, many of them have documents that are far more overtly Christian than mm -hmm. ours, mm -hmm. and yet they've, they've spiraled into yeah. paganism. So yeah. there's certainly no preservative power in right. those sorts of acknowledgments. So I, I really just, I don't, have a ton of interest in talking about that because I don't think it's commanded. I don't know that it does anything fruitful. Um, and I think ultimately what we see in the Bible when it comes to a government acknowledging its authority being derived by God, you see that in the actions, mm -hmm. not the printed word. Yeah. You see that in the way they rule and their desire to rule justly in accordance with his standards. All right. What's next? Uh, well, we're going to talk about justice. Oh, so we're, we're done with this we're episode. We're done. This is it. Wow. Church and state. Wow. Church and state. Keep them separate. Keep them separate, both under God. Yeah. Both derive their authority from God, but they have different jobs that we don't want overlapping. So does this mean that you're a classical liberal? 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't like, I wouldn't say that because I don't trust anyone to know what that means these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, more or less. I think a lot of classical liberal values are unhelpfully detached from Christian values when we look at them historically. But yeah. I think most classical liberals arrived at the values they arrived at through a Christian worldview. Gotcha. Uh, there's certainly a point where the Enlightenment took that too far into autonomy. That's right. Uh, I would stop there. Yeah, that's something else we haven't talked about, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on now. But how did how did a secular uh, government like the one we have in the United States uh, so closely align with what we see in a biblical worldview? Well, it's because we're downstream; we're yeah. so close to the fountainhead of a biblical worldview. Yes, and yeah. and when you look back at history, historians <clears throat> tend to either dramatically downplay the role of Christian theology in the founding of mm -hmm. the United States and our form of government, or they exaggerate it and make it sound like every founder was an evangelical. Yeah. Uh, it, neither's true, yeah. but there was a, a really intense Christian worldview at work in the writing. Yeah. And just to give you an example, uh, our Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So within the establishing documents of our, of our country, we have a reference to God as the source of human rights. Now, yeah. I think he gives us more than that. Sure. Um, and I think that, for example, he gives the government itself the authority to yeah. reign. But I, I see that as a then balanced by the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Yeah. Not the existence of religion in politics, but the establishment of religion, a church, nationally, or prohibiting the free exercise. And so there you have that tension in the acknowledgement. Like, yeah. Is our country using this acknowledgement view perfectly? I don't think so. Yeah. It probably even in the early days it wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that's what we should as as aspire toward and strive for. Alan C. Gelzo says that the United States is the child of uh, Puritanism and the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. right? So you, you kind of see that with some evangelical founding fathers, some deists. Yeah. Those are basically the two camps, Puritans, Enlightenment. But what's interesting even about that is you don't get the Enlightenment without the Christian worldview. That's exactly right. Right? So, yeah. yeah. Well, brother, we could probably just keep rambling on and on, but... Uh, Nobody wants to hear that. My final encouragement before we wrap up is if... If you're listening and you you feel like you have more questions now than you did when you began listening, uh, hang in there. We're going to get there. We're going to address some of those big what, if, what ifs. You just got to stick with us. How many episodes do you think this is going to be in total? As many as it takes. Sure. How many? So this is, <laughs> we're actually doing a version of what we did at Sixth Avenue Community Church in a Sunday school class. How many classes was that? I did it in six. Six. So and this is number two. This is number two. So hang in there. Four more episodes, at least, at least, to answer some of those big "what if" questions, and then if you still, you know, have some questions, we'll we'll deal with those after we're done recording all all six. So, uh, signing off for defend and confirm. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us the grace uh, to pursue truth. We know that the only reason we have any desire to know what your word says is the standard for uh, the state is because you've saved us mm -hmm. and you've, uh, you've given us a hunger for justice and for truth uh, that can only be born of the Holy spirit. And Lord, we know we can only find it in your word. Uh, so we pray that um, you'll protect us even as we record future episodes from saying anything untrue and unhelpful. Lord lead us as we lead our listeners and our viewers. We pray this in Jesus's name. Amen. Amen.